Pray with me. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for what your son did for us on the cross and how you've given to us a reminder on a, on a regular basis to remember what he has done and the price that he paid for our souls and for our sin. Lord, I thank you for the forgiveness that we readily receive. And Lord, I pray that we would um, seek earnestly after you in a relationship with you that would go beyond just Sunday morning or beyond the um, appearance of performance, but one that would be um, transformative and we would walk with you on a daily basis and seek your face. And we, Lord, Lord, we lift up the rest of today. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. This morning, we're going to do our scripture reading from Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 47. So if you have your Bible, it's going to be real short and sweet scripture reading this morning. Acts chapter 13, verse 47. And then after we do our scripture reading together, uh, we will, I will introduce our speaker for the missions conference. So Acts 13, I'll begin in just 44. Uh, just for a little bit of the context for our scripture reading in verse 47. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary for the word of God to be spoken to you first, since you repudiated it and judged yourself unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the disciples, or Gentiles, excuse me. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That's our scripture reading today. Allow me to introduce to you our missions conference speaker real quick, just to let you know that tonight at 530 uh, right here at Calvary Bible Church, we'll have our Sunday evening service for our missions conference, which will conclude uh, the missions conference this weekend. So that's tonight at 530 right here in the sanctuary. And Jim Adams will be sharing with us tonight as well. But allow me to introduce him to you. Uh, Jim is a native of Missouri who practiced law in Houston, Texas, before beginning his theological studies at Dallas Theological Seminary, my alma mater where he received his THM in 1988 and his demon in 2019. He has served in El Salvador, Guatemala, and the United States as a missionary with Camino Global for 30 years, focusing primarily on the areas of pastoral ministry and theological education. He taught at Sateca in Guatemala City, which I visited, I don't know, about 12 years ago, for 12 years in the areas of spiritual formation, conflict resolution, and Christian leadership, serving concordantly, as president for seven years, the Adams returned to the United States in 2013, and from 2016 to 2020, Jim was the coordinator uh, for Dallas Theological Seminary Spanish Doctor of Ministry program. He also began a leadership training program in 2016 for Hispanic leaders in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Jim currently teaches as an adjunct professor with DTS in Espanol and with Sateca Seminary in Guatemala. He also works with missionaries called Refresh aimed at helping church leadership teams to implement principles of spiritual formation in their church. Jim has been happily married to his wife, Jenny. She is here with us as well. An MK from Guatemala for 33 years. I believe that we supported your parents. Is that correct, as missionaries? So that's, uh, we, we have, I think we now have great, great grandchildren of people that we have supported here at Calvary Bible Church. So for 33 years, and they have two sons, Caleb, who was born in Argentina, and Nathan, born in El Salvador. If you would welcome Jim Adams as our special speaker to this morning.
Thank you, Pastor Byron. Thank you, church. It is always a privilege to share the Word of God, and it is a special privilege to share it with you on this 55th missions anniversary. Um, you inspire me. You inspire me with your faithfulness. Just hearing that about how you supported, what was it, four generations of missionaries. That is faithfulness. You inspire me because you make me see how awesome God is in blessing every tribe, every tongue, and every nation with his gospel in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, you are faithful, great and glorious. Open our heart this morning to hear what you had to say to each one of us. You bless us not only with your word, but with the very love that you pour into our souls by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I love uh, reading about church his- history, I don't, especially the early church. Anybody else here like church history? Maybe? Okay. We've got some fans of church history. One of my favorite church historians is a man named Gerald Sitzer, who recently wrote a book called Resilient Faith. And what I like about Gerald Sitzer is that he doesn't get all tangled up in the details about the church fathers and the reformers and the church councils and all the creeds, although he is an expert in all that. But in Resilient Faith, he asks a question that fascinates me. And the question is this. How in the world... How in the world did the church of Jesus Christ ever survive and thrive in a culture of Roman power that either ignored the church or despised the church or sometimes even hated the church so much that it would kill the followers of Jesus Christ by some of the cruelest means that man ever devised? How, how did that happen? Because the church had nothing. They had no public buildings to worship in. They had no Christian schools to send their children to. They didn't have Christian books. They had a few discipleship manuals. There were no high-profile pastors, no megachurches, no powerful parachurch organizations like Awana or CEF. They had no Bible colleges or seminaries like Dallas Theological Seminary. No D-Men programs for sure. They, They had nothing. No cultural influence at all. Zero political power. But the church kept going and growing and thriving and spreading. We don't have exact statistics, but I'd like to read a few of them to you. These are estimates. We know that the church experienced explosive growth in the day of Pentecost, right? It is estimated that by the year 100, there were about 7,500 Christians in the Roman Empire of 60 million people. That's one of every 10,000. By the year 150, the estimate is 40,000 Christians. That's more, but still a tiny minority. By the year 200, it's estimated there were more than 200,000 Christians who claimed the name of Christ, and 50 years later, by the year 250, there were 1 million Christians. By the year 300, there were 5 million in the Roman Empire believers, followers of Jesus Christ. And all this, get, get, get this, all this, before 13, sorry, before 313, 
when Constantine, in the Edict of Milan, declared that Christianity was an official religion. So in other words, all this growth took place at a time when you might be mocked, marginalized, persecuted. Your property might be taken. You might even be executed for being a Christian. So Sitzer's question is, how is this possible? How did the church grow like that? Have you ever wondered that? His answer is that the church knew how to practice what he calls, and others have called, the third way. The third way. The first way was the Roman way of cultural assimilation. The Romans, in their culture, would assimilate you into their their values and and their beliefs their sexual ethic, their social class structure, the way they define power and prominence and personal glory. That was the first way, the way of cultural assimilation. The second way was the way of religious isolation. That is what the Jewish people practiced. They had their religion, religious rules to isolate themselves from the Romans. They hated the Romans. They hated everything Roman. They did not associate with Romans. They ate kosher food, bought from kosher shops. They dressed distinctly. They did not marry Romans. They wanted nothing to do with Romans. That was the second way. But the third way, the third way was the Jesus way. And the Jesus way was a way of light. Light shining in the darkness. And that is why I absolutely love the the theme verse for this missions conference that Pastor Byron just read. For so the Lord has commanded us I have made you a light to the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Light is always the third way. Always. Light is never assimilated by darkness. Light never isolates itself from darkness. Light shines in the darkness. Light goes out. So let's turn to Acts 13 in our Bible, and we're going to talk about how we go out as light in this third way. Acts 13. And to give us an idea of where we're headed, we're going to look at four S's, four S's, in terms of how we go out as light. The first S is story. That's what we're going to focus on this morning. And then there'll be three more S's. Serving, suffering, and spirit, Lord willing, that will be for tonight. So the first S is story. And by story, I mean the story of God's amazing, eternal, redeeming grace in Jesus. In the incarnation, life, death, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus, the eternal Son of God. And I'm going to take a risk with you this morning and ask you to do something. I want us to capture the story as if we had never heard it before. So I'm going to start reading at Acts 13.13. It's a long passage. But remember that Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, gave us this entire passage. Luke wants us to be gripped by this story. So here we go. And as we do that, I'm going to ask you to do a few more things. Okay. Acts 13.13. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, which is Cyprus, and they came to Perga in Pamphylia, which is the southern coast of modern-day Turkey. 
And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. In his commentary on the book of Acts, Kent Hughes says, The realities of missionary life smashed John's romanticized dreams of missionary service. I hate it when that happens. Verse 14, But they went on from Perga, and they came to Antioch in Pisidia, which is the leading Roman colony in that region. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and they sat down. And after reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioned with his hand and said, and here comes the story. So here's what I'd like you to do. Just make a mental note as we go through the story of all the places where you see God's redeeming grace in action. We're on a, a grace sighting watch party here. Men of Israel, says Paul, and you who fear God, listen. We're at verse 17. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. Do you see any grace there? And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness, obviously referring to the golden calf and the rebellion of the people. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he still gave them their land as an inheritance. Lots of grace there. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, a king like the nations. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years, not by any stretch of imagination, the shepherd king that Israel needed to feed them and lead them in God's ways. And when he, God, had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. People are listening intently here. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what, what do you suppose that I am? No, I am not he. But behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers. Sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him or understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them, the scriptures, by condemning him, Jesus. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, written of Jesus and the prophets, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God, but God raised him from the dead. And for many years he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus as also 
it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessing of David. Scripture is a unity of God's grace being declared in Jesus. Verse 35, And therefore he says in another psalm, You will not let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up, Jesus, did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. And so even though this is the story of the the worship-inspiring Mission generating grace of God being poured out in the person of Jesus, Paul knows that some won't believe. So he keeps talking. Verse 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told on the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism, that is Gentiles, followed Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict the story that was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And then comes our theme verse. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So why did I take so much time to read this story? Why did Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, take so much time to give us all these details? I think what Luke wants to communicate is is that unless our heart is mesmerized, energized, captured by the wonder of God's grace to us in Jesus, we cannot go out and shine His light. Unless the gospel captures our affections and our worship, we will end up in cultural assimilation or religious isolation. And so I want to talk this morning about three ways that the story energizes us to go out as light. Three ways the story energizes us as the church of Jesus Christ. Number one, the story renews your wonder at the grace of God in your life. The story revitalizes, it renews, it regenerates our wonder and our worship at the grace of God to us through Jesus Christ. In the first part of Acts 13 here, this is not Paul's History 101 course for Israel. The people who are listening already know the facts. What they don't have yet is wonder, 
wonder and worship of God's grace in Jesus. And Paul wants his hearers to to respond with wonder and awe at this overflowing grace of Jesus. So how many grace findings did you get as as we read through this passage? Was there a lot of grace in this passage? Yeah, it it was everywhere. It was everywhere. But the greatest grace, of course, is the grace that shines forth from the cross. God's grace to us. The so-called shepherd leaders of the nation of Israel had the kings of the nations crucify the Lord of glory. But God, says Paul, but God in, in his grace raised up Jesus that you might have, all those who are listening, that you might have forgiveness of sins and life, God's life in you through Jesus. Pastor Josh Howerton says this. He says, the cross shows us two things. The first thing the cross shows us is that man hates God enough to kill him. The second thing the cross shows us is that God loves man enough to die for him. I beg of you this morning. I do. I beg of you. Let your heart be energized by the wonder of of the grace of God to you in Jesus Christ. I beg of you to worship God for the wonder of His grace to you and to me. Do you know what makes a bad missionary? Did you know there were bad missionaries? Evidently, there are. (laughs) A book came out last year called God Shines Forth, How the Nature of of God shapes and drives the mission of the church. And there's a section in the book entitled, How to Be Bad Missionaries. And it's about John and Charles Wesley. The Wesley brothers, as some of you know, were members of the Holy Club in Oxford in in England in the 18th century. And they were members of this Holy Club and they wanted to be really holy, so they spent all their time reading the Bible and praying and fasting. And they were also very active in local missions work. So they would take food to poor families. They taught orphans how to read. They visited prisons. And they were really, really good at this. And so people said, you know what? You guys ought to be missionaries. In fact, you ought to go to the United States and you ought to go to Georgia, that penal colony where all the really, really bad people are. You ought to go there. And so they did. And in October of 1735, they arrived at Savannah, Georgia, and they started in with their missions work. And in two years, they burned out. They went home on a boat, sad, depressed, joyless, and with a deep sense in their heart that something was not quite right. The authors of God Shines Forth tell us this. Even as the Wesleys crossed the ocean to be missionaries, they had never truly known the glorious love of God in Christ. Their ministry, their mission, say the authors, were not the fruit of happy hearts, but the toil of spiritual captives. That changed The Wesleys did come to know the glorious love of God in Christ Jesus, mainly through the influence of Moravian 
missionaries and by reading Luther's commentaries on Galatians and Romans. And for Charles Wesley, the breakthrough came on Sunday, May 21st, 1738. And some people believe that it was shortly thereafter, just a few days thereafter, that he wrote what was probably his most famous hymn, And Can It Be? And can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die? me. Three days later, it was John Wesley. He was listening to someone read the preface to Luther's commentary on Romans. It was probably William Holland, who was a house painter and a friend of the Wesleys. And John Wesley says this, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, in Christ alone for my salvation, and that he had taken away my sins. Yes, even mine. And that he had saved me from the law of sin and death. Does the story still warm your heart? Does the story still stir your soul? How can it be amazing love that thou, my God, should die for me? And so in England in 738, revival began. And missions went out with people like the Wesleys, George Whitfield. William Holland and many others' names we, we, we do not know, energized, energized by their understanding of the incredible, wondrous grace of God in Christ Jesus. And, and I know you could say this morning, well, yeah, the Wesleys, they were bad missionaries. I mean, who even knows that they were Christians at the time? But the bigger point this morning is, Are you serving as a spiritual captive or with a happy heart in Jesus? Because if this morning you are serving the Lord as if it were a spiritual captive, God would delight in changing that. God would delight in pouring into your soul the wonder of His grace that you might serve Him with a happy heart, with the joy of His grace. So number one, the story renews our wonder and worship for the grace of God in Christ Jesus to us. Number two, second thing the story does to help us go out, it refreshes our strategies to focus on the glory of Jesus. The story refreshes our strategies, our mission strategy, our evangelism strategy to focus on the glory of the person and work of Jesus. So let me explain what I mean by that. When Paul starts his message in Acts 13, he he doesn't say, how many of you would like to know if you're going to heaven tonight? Now, that's a good question, and I've used it. But, but, But Paul has something more in mind here, and let me explain where I'm going with this with a personal story. Uh, When we worked in El Salvador for many years, I worked with a group called the Evangelism Commission. I worked closely with a pastor evangelist named... Silas Calderon. I'm always grateful to God for him. He took me under his wing as a young missionary and showed me so many things. So the Evangelism Commission, we would go out to these different towns and places, and we would do evangelistic events. Sometimes they were open-air events. Sometimes we would do evangelistic events within the church. And my job was to help Silas uh, 
I was supposed to do the training of the church in evangelism. And he did the preaching. So as, as we did this, it was not too long before I began to discover that church members, where we were doing these events, did not know how to share the gospel. We would make visits to the homes of people that we contacted, and they would, um, the people who did not know the Lord, with church members. And the church members would say something like, sure would like to see you in church this Sunday. You know, God would really, he could really bless your life if you just let him. You know, God would like to work in your family. Those were good things, but the gospel was AWOL. So I had this, what I thought was a brilliant idea. We're going to teach everybody in this denomination, the Cam Church denomination, we're going to teach everybody how to share the gospel using the bridge illustration. How many of you are familiar with the bridge? Yeah, it's, it's a great illustration. So God is on this side of the bridge. Sin separates me from God. And Jesus is the bridge that leads me to God for forgiveness of my sins and eternal life. So we printed off, we got permission from the Billy Graham Association to use their version of the bridge, and we printed thousands of the bridge pamphlets. And then we would go to the church, and I would do the evangelism training, and then we would go out and we would share the gospel with people using the bridge. Was that a good strategy? There was a lot of good in it. It really was. People learned how to share the gospel. We saw many people come to know the Lord and become followers of Jesus Christ. But over time, it was like the bridge began to overshadow Jesus himself. And and people really got got into it. And so, yeah, you got a problem? Don't worry. Sin is your problem. Here's a solution. I got Jesus. I mean, who can resist that? People were more enamored of the bridge than they were of of Jesus, and that was kind of on me. So I'm not against tracts. Please hear me. If you have tracts, use them. They are helpful. They are useful. But what I want to say is this. My, this is on me, my desire to have an effective evangelism strategy began to leave us with a transactional Jesus. A transactional Jesus. Missions, we must not, we cannot do missions with a transactional Jesus. Never. We must hold before people the beauty of the living Lord Jesus Christ and His work of sacrifice, substitution, transformation, redemption. I love the way that Michael Reeves says it in his book, Rejoicing in Christ. He says, For through the gospel... The Spirit has opened our eyes to see not merely that Christ is true in the bridge presentation, for example, but more that Christ is glorious. He is precious, desirable, captivating, satisfying, delightful. Joy always comes through encouraging beauty. And in Christ is found the highest beauty. We see God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. So the first way the story helps us, it renews our wonder at the grace of God to us. The second way, it refreshes, begins to change our missionary strategies. And the third way is this, the story revitalizes, revitalizes our vision to shine as light. The story revitalizes our vision to live as light. Remember, light cannot be assimilated by darkness because 
John said in his gospel, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness what? Cannot overcome it. And light never isolates from the darkness. Jesus himself said, no one lights a lamp to put it under a basket. No, you light a lamp to put it on a stand in the house that it might give light to everyone who comes into the room. The light shines in the darkness. And you, dear church, you are light in the Lord. The New Testament says that again and again. Paul says in Ephesians 5, 8, At one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. In Philippians 2, Paul says, Do all things without grumbling and disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine. You shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. Romans 13:12, written to those who were facing Roman assimilation. Paul says, the night is gone, the day is at hand. Let us cast off the works of darkness. Put on, put on the armor of light. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Missions is the going out of light. And as Peter says, it's to proclaim the excellencies of him who calls us from darkness into his marvelous light in Jesus Christ. Light shines. And the interesting thing about light is that, as I understand it, light has no mass. Now, I'm about to get in trouble here uh, because there's a lot of physicists in this church. This is a smart church. I am not smart. So you, anything I say about physics, you need to fact check it. But after the service, after the service. So, But as I understand it, Life has, light can transmit energy, but it has no mass. The early church was light, but it had no cultural mass. It had no cultural cloud. Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus never had any cultural mass, any cultural cloud, as it were. And the reason I'm talking about this is that I sometimes get upset. When I see the, the loss, as it were, of cultural mass, that people mock the church. They ignore God. They revile Him. They belittle the Lord Jesus Christ. We're living at a time when we, the, the world wants to assimilate us into its culture, into the way that it thinks and, and that it lives. But you know, when I get snarky and frustrated and upset, that doesn't help. It's, it's wanting to have cultural mass. My focus needs to be on how to shine as light. Because here's the good news. You can shine as Jesus' light without any cultural mass at all. You can shine. In a thousand different ways, in a thousand different places. We'll talk more about that tonight. I want to close with a simple illustration about light. Um, this past summer, our church was reading a book by John Mark Comer called Live No Lies, and he was de describing this loss of cultural mass. And he used an example that stopped me in my tracks. 
The example is from the country of Iceland. Iceland is considered one of the best places in the world to live in terms of quality of life. And Iceland claims to be 80% Christian. 80% of the people in Iceland self-identify as Christians. So a leading Icelandic doctor said this, we have basically eradicated Down syndrome from our society. And I thought, wow, did they have some kind of a medical breakthrough? How did they do that? Then you find out. He says, we now abort all babies with Down syndrome. That's how we eradicate Down syndrome. Some statistics show that in Scandinavian countries like Denmark, 90%, 98%, excuse me, of babies with Down syndrome are aborted. In France, the percentage is 77%. There are perhaps no hard statistics here in the U.S., but estimates are that it's around 67%. What does this have to do with life? In our church in Texas, we recently made a partnership with a school called the Green Oak School, which has a program for Down syndrome young adults called Equip uh, Life Prep. It prepares them to do life. And these children, these young adults, they're not children anymore. These young adults come to our church on Thursday night. They're part of our college group. They enrich our college group in such special ways. And Jenny and I uh, see them on Sunday mornings down in front as they worship God. They come forward after the service to talk to the pastor about the message or to be prayed for. Uh, One of my fondest memories of Guatemala are a couple of boys named Brian and Danny Cajas, Down Syndrome boys. Uh, They formed part of a ministry called La Fuerza de los Fragiles, the strength of the fragile ones. And I will never forget the day that they led the worship time in the seminary chapel and gave their testimonies. I'm telling you, that place was rocking. It was rocking. And Brian and Danny loved to serve the Lord, and they would come down to Satek, our seminary, and they would help us with various projects. I remember them stuffing envelopes in the day when that's the way you did it. Uh, You used the mail. Stuffing envelopes with letters that the seminary was sending out to his friends and supporters. Is that missions? I think so. That's light. That's light shining in a cultural darkness that wants to abort these babies, these children. That's light shining as it holds fast to God's Word that we value life. That's light shining forth with everything that's good and true and right. That's the fruit of the light. That's light revealing the excellencies of God's grace and power in Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. And light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. And so I love the last verse of Charles Wesley's And Can It Be? He says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's how we go out. The light leads us out. And you will shine. Yes, you will. You will shine as light in the Lord that His salvation may go to the ends of the earth. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, I confess personally that so much of the time I don't get it. I want to do things by power strategy, by having some kind of mass. And yet you tell us very simply that we are light in your son Jesus. Thank you for this church. Thank you for this church's commitment to being light. Decade after decade after decade. Guide us, change us, but above all, may our heart worship you again with wonder. With wonder at all the grace you have poured into us. In your Son, Jesus Christ, we have eternal life with you now and forever. And so we pray with gratitude in Jesus' name. Amen.